0: Let's in our Bibles to, turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, this morning. John, chapter 1, we're studying this great Gospel in my church in Pretoria, and I thought I would take you to the opening section of John today as we study the Word of God together. These verses are a great highlight in all of the Scripture. Verses that stir my soul, and I hope they do yours as well. Let's just read the first three verses as we begin. That will be the focus of our attention this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being." Now, I must confess, as a preacher, when I approach the opening verses of the Gospel of John, I feel a little bit like an architect who has been trained to design houses, but then has unexpectedly been commissioned to design and build the Cologne Cathedral. This passage is too profound, it is too grand, it is too great for one like me even to comment on. That's how I feel when I come to this text. I'm an insect lost in the grandeur and the glory of the greatness of Christ found in these opening verses of John's Gospel. What John does here is, in fact, unique among the Gospels. We read the Gospel of Mark, the opening of Mark this morning. Mark begins his Gospel speaking about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's a good place to start a Gospel. Luke and Matthew, they open by speaking of the beginning of Jesus' earthly life in the womb of Mary. In comparison, though, John does something totally different. His introduction streaks like a comet across the sky with a million-mile-long tail. The other gospels are mere fixed points of light. John blazes this glorious path, glorious path across creation and preexistence and deity itself. It is utterly unique. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To start his gospel, what John does is he goes beyond all beginnings. When everything began, the word already was. As he talks about our Lord Jesus Christ here, he says that he was both with God and God at the same time. Commentator Leon Morris writes, "...if that's a staggering affirmation to us, there's no reason to think that it was any less so to the Jewish author of this gospel." When he thinks of the word, says Morris, he lays it down unequivocally that nothing less than God will do for our understanding of the words. Unquote. In fact, this statement in John 1.1 1, 1 is really the lens through which you must read the rest of the gospel of John. If you don't start here in verse 1 where John starts, then in fact you can't understand anything that follows in John's gospel. Here, John gives you the presupposition, the very starting point of his gospel. The one of whom he writes, Jesus of Nazareth, is indeed God himself. Now, let me illustrate the significance of this. The shocking, distinctive power of the way that John starts his gospel. Let me illustrate this in a terrible, a horrible way. And I hope Rick won't charge the pulpit when I do this, right? What if we took some of the founders of other world religions and took their names and put them in here and read this statement? What would that be like? If we read, for example, in the beginning was Buddha. Buddha was with God and Buddha was... That doesn't work, does it? It doesn't work. In fact, it's awful. Or in the beginning was Muhammad. Muhammad was with God and Muhammad was God. That doesn't work. It's absurd. It's blasphemous. In fact, not even a Muslim would say or think or hold to that statement. In the beginning was Confucius or Moses. Confucius or Moses was God. Does that help you understand? Does that help you understand the the crushing, pulverizing, shattering gravity of this opening statement of John's gospel? Only of Jesus Christ... Only of Jesus Christ can you say this and it have not be absurd, ridiculous blasphemy. There is no other in all the history of the human race, no other in the angelic race. There is no one of whom this statement can be made and it is not sheer laughable nonsense. Of no other man, of no other woman, of no other being can you say what John 1 says. Only of Jesus Christ, the God become man. With this opening line, what John has done is he has placed our Lord Jesus Christ in a category utterly by himself. He's utterly alone. He has no rivals. He has no competitors. There is indeed no one like him. No one like him. Now... As we begin, I just want to highlight a couple of the key verses. We'll look at verses 14 through 18 tonight, and I want to encourage you to be back for that. But as we do that, I want to highlight the three pivotal verses in this prologue or opening section of John. Is verse 1, which we've read, and then he moves to verse 14. That's also critical. That's another stake in the ground. In verse 1, John starts off by telling you that the word, our Lord Jesus Christ, is preexistent God's then in verse 14, he says that, that preexistent eternal word became flesh. That way you know, we know for sure it is Jesus of Nazareth that he's speaking of. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, which is another stake in the ground verse here in this section... John gives a primary or a primary reason for the incarnation. The preexistence, eternal word, took on human flesh so that he could explain God. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, exposited him, exegeted him. In other words, the word, Jesus Christ, is the keyhole. You want to get down on your knees and see the glory of God, the keyhole through in which you would look to see the vast room, infinite room that lies behind, full with the glory of God, the keyhole through whom we look is Jesus Christ. Now, although he is not mentioned here, we would certainly include God the Spirit here as part of the Trinity. And so we'd have the Father, the Son, and the Spirits, three in one. And here's the reality that John is putting in front of you. The reality is is that it takes God to explain God. There are no analogies. There's no comparisons for God because there's no one like him. It takes God to explain God. And so Jesus Christ can do it. Because he is co-eternal, consubstantial, God of very God. He is not some subordinate sub-deity who has been commissioned to a task that's a little out of his reach, that's a little too much for him, a little beyond his essence and his ability. No. He is a living, breathing paragraph telling us in full, as fully as you and I can comprehend, telling us in full who God is. He's the connection. The Word, our Lord. He is the connection between the eternal and infinite longings in our heart and the eternal infinite God who fulfills them. He's the bridge. The word is the bridge. He is God become man. So So that we might see and touch and taste and feel God. And in him, through the cross and through the forgiveness that he's won on the cross... We might have our sins forgiven and have our deepest longings, our longing for God himself satisfied. Now today as we gaze at this sweeping, dizzying cathedral of John 1, 1, and we'll wrap in verse 2 and 3 a little bit as well. As we gaze at this, we're going to find three three Christ-exalting truths. And that's how we'll break this down. Three Christ-exalting truths. Let me give you those truths as we begin. They'll be very easy to see. Just follow the commas in verse 1. The exalting truths in verse 1 are God, he is, God, the word, he is God eternal. That's number one. The word is God eternal. Secondly, he is God distinct. And thirdly, he is God equal. God eternal, God distinct, and God equal. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, the glorious, exalting truth about Jesus Christ that's yielded up by that first little line in verse 1 is that Jesus is God eternal. In the beginning was the Word. Now, this is, frankly, just a sheer, brute declaration of the preexistence of God the Son, the Word. Since John says that the Word became flesh in verse 14, as I noted, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ is under consideration here. You knew that. Now, it's interesting when you read commentaries on John 1. They do all kinds of gymnastics trying to figure out where John came up with his thoughts here. Because a lot of what he says is very unique or at least worded in a very unique way. Well... Here at the beginning of verse 1, there's no question, at least, where John got his thoughts. The opening words in our K in Greek or in the beginning in our English Bibles are exactly the opening words of Genesis 1-1 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that John and the other apostles would have used. And so it's exactly the same as Genesis 1-1, and of course that's not an accident. It is critical to John that you understand that while all other things had a beginning... The word had none. He is pre-existent. He is uncreated. He is eternal. The verb was there in the first line is actually, actually in the imperfect tense. And that's a tense that denoted a continuing, repeated, enduring, ongoing action in the past. And so in the beginning, in Genesis 1, when God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures... The Word already was, and enduringly so. When God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth, the Word already existed. When God made the sun and the moon and the stars, the Word was. When God gathered the waters into one place and caused the dry land to appear, the Word was. When God said, Let there be light. The Word was. In the beginning, when everything else had its beginning, the Word already enduringly, perpetually, continually was. In your Bible, before Genesis 1 1, there are some white spaces. That's where our Lord was. He didn't become, He just enduringly was. In the words of one commentator, quote, It's fundamental to John that the Word is not to be included. He is not to be included among created things. You see, the, the heavens and the earth, they became. Plants, animals, angels, Adam and Eve, became. The physical stuff of this creation became. The Word was. Pre-existing, eternal. Eternal. With one stroke of his pen, the Apostle John puts the Word, our, our Lord Jesus Christ, he puts him outside of the realm of everything that you and I know and are familiar with. You see, everything you know became. I mean, look around here for a moment, just, just look around. Everything you know had a beginning. You became, the people around you became. Everything that you see or touch or feel or taste or hear, everything you know became. It started. The Word never started. Never became. When everything else was starting in the six days of creation, He already enduringly, eternally was. Now, one of the great doctrinal controversies in the history of the church is called Arianism. Arius was a preacher in the city of Alexandria in Egypt, one of the great cities of the New Testament world. About A.D. 320, Arius started to preach sermons in the city of Alexandria, and he started to write little songs that became very popular around the Mediterranean world. And those sermons and those songs had a line in them. It's a line I don't even like to say when I'm quoting it, but here it was. This is the line that he put in. There was when he was not. That was Arius's doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ of the Son. The Son, argued Arius, started. He began, he did not exist, and then, boop, he popped into existence one day. Arius was the original Jehovah's Witness, if you will. Denying the full deity and the full eternality of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, Arius's heretical notion of the word is... Destroyed here in John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word. When everything else began, he was. But you challenge now, Joel, you're playing games with me here. Maybe the Word only began a couple minutes before everything else began. What about that? Is that a possibility? Maybe a couple of minutes before Genesis 1-1, the word popped into existence. Maybe that's all John is saying, that the word's beginning was just a little bit further back in eternity past. Well, to answer that, we would look simply at verse 3 of John 1. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John says, if something had a beginning, the word began it. The word started it. The word itself had no beginning. He is uncreated creator. He did not start. He did not begin. Everything that was created, He, in fact, made. Therefore, the right and full interpretation of John one one is that the Word, God the Son, was preexistent and co-eternal with God the Father. His name is, just as much as the Father, I am, or Yahweh, I exist, from the Old Testaments. Everything else began. He enduringly, continually, perpetually, eternally was. He is God, eternal. That's the first Christ-exalting truth in verse 1. But there's a second truth as we move one comma further into the verse. A second exalting truth about Christ in this verse is that he is God-distinct. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, there's nothing profound or shocking about that. About this statement, there's nothing shocking until you read to the end of verse 1. He was with God, and the Word was God's. See, already in the very first verse of John's gospel, John is introducing the doctrine of the Trinity. He's not going to bother to try to keep it easy and simple. He's going to put the Trinity right in front of you, right up front. First verse. One God. Eternally existing in three persons. Now, as I said, as we focus in in the middle of verse 1, there's nothing especially shocking about the word being with God. It's the fact that he is God and God distinct. That he is God and distinct from God at the same time. That's what's a little bit mind-numbing. Now, let's focus on the with for a moment. The word translated with there, the word was with God, especially emphasized being with another person. That's typically how it was used in Greek in the New Testament. It implies kind of a face-to-face sort of intimate relationship with somebody. I'm with the person. In other words, the word was eternally pre-existing. For all eternity, the word has been with God the Father in a personal Face-to-face relationship. That relationship included glory, complete infinite union or companionship, enduring indescribable divine love as well. You see that in John chapter 17. Turn over to John 17 for a moment to Jesus' high priestly prayer. And you'll see that Jesus speaks of his pre-temporal, his before-time relationship with God the Father and with God the Spirit. In John 17 verse 5, Jesus is praying and he says to the Father, "Now, Father, John 17:5, now Father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was." You say, what were God the Father and God the Son doing back there in Genesis, before Genesis 1, Genesis 0, if you want to call it that? What were they doing? They were having an eternal, perpetual relationship of inexpressible glory. There was also to this relationship an aspect of deep, perpetual communion. Jump down to verse 20. John 17, 20. Jesus is now praying for the disciples and for all those who had come to faith, you and me and others, all who believed through their ministry. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, only on the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their words. What does he ask? He asks for unity. That they may all be one, comparison, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. What were the Father and the Son doing in all eternity? They were sharing a relationship of deep, close, close intimacy and union. It also involved perpetual love. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, they who believe in him, they also whom you have given to me, be with me where I am. That's one of my favorite statements in the whole Bible. Jesus, for some reason, wants you and me as believers in him to be with him forever. That's amazing. I want them to be with me where I am. So that, I can, so that they, rather, may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the worlds. In John 1.1, 1, 1, John said, In the beginning was the words... But the Word, so God the Son was doing there in the beginning in his eternal existence was loving and being loved by the Father and by the Spirit. Back in John 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God in this perpetual, uninterrupted, joyful, and imaginably blessed intimate relationship of glory and love. The Word was with God. Now, the distinctness of God the Son, the Word from the Father, is seen all over the Gospel of John. It's seen as the Father sends the Son, speaks to the Son, and for the sake of sinners on the cross even forsakes the Son. In other words, there's no room in John's Gospel for what is called modalism. Modalism is the theological idea that God is one person who appears in three different modes. Sometimes he's God the Father, and then he switches hats quickly and becomes God the Son, and then Zoop changes and becomes God the Spirit. Here, John makes clear that the Father and the Son are not like Clark Kent and Superman, never seen in the same place at the same time. In fact... They are distinct persons, fully and equally God's, but distinct as well. The Word was with God, a distinct being. Now, that's not so shocking, but as we look back at verse 1, when you combine it with the last line of verse 1, it becomes a little bit mind-numbing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God's. That should cause a double-take when you read it. The word was with God and God at the same time. I'm doing the math. It doesn't seem to add up. In divine math, 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3 and 1 at the same time. God's as bad at math as I am, apparently. (laughs) Jesus Christ is exalted above all because he is God eternal. He is God distinct. And thirdly here in verse 1, he is God equal. God equal. Now, as you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses make much of this verse saying that since there is no the in the Greek in front of the word God, it should be translated the word was a God. And you know that, people in my church know that, they come to our doors in Pretoria just like they come to your door here in Kansas City. Uh, I think they marked a big X on the gate in front of my house, they don't seem to come to my house anymore for some reason. Can't imagine why that is. Job's witnesses, you know, if you've talked to them, say, well, there's only one true grammatical way to translate John 1. Verse 1, they would say that translation should be that Jesus was a God, and it would place, the way they translate it, places him below the Father as some kind of sub-deity, divine, but not fully divine. Well, since you've been confronted with that kind of thing, no doubt, as I have, and people in my church in Pretoria have, let me just make a couple of points for you here. First of all, the Jehovah's Witnesses are very selective about where they apply what they call this absolute translational principle. That if there is no the, then you must translate it a God. They'll tell you it's an absolute principle, but they're very selective. In fact, the noun theos or God is used 282 times in the New Testament without the word the in front of it. Only in 16 out of those 282 do the JWs translate it as they do here in John 1.1. In other words, they are faithful to their most important translational principle about 6% of the time. That tells you they're playing games right from the beginning, doesn't it? Here, in fact, in John 1 verses 1 through 18 in the prologue, here, the word God is used eight times without the word the in front of it in Greek. Six of those eight, the Jehovah's Witness, do not translate it a God. Why? Because that translation is so obviously wrong in the context. They're playing games, they just aren't telling you. The issue is not the grammar. Of course, it's their theological pre-commitments to disbelieve in the deity of Jesus Christ. In fact, they had applied their grammatical rule faithfully. For example, in John one one, they should have translated, in a beginning was the word, because there's no the in front of the word beginning. And they should have, in verse 4, read, in him was a life. But, of course, they translated the life, because it's obvious. It should be translated that way. Let me take you a step further. There's actually a very good way in Greek to translate or to to write that you're trying to say something is divine without being fully God. I'm actually not quite sure what that would even mean, but that you could be divine without being fully God. Greek actually has a word for that. The Greek word for God is theos, but if you wanted to say that someone was kind of God-ish but not fully God, you would say they were theios. You put a little I in the middle of that. Theios. John did not use theios here. Very normal Greek word, often used. He doesn't use it. Why not? He's not trying to say that. What he's saying is that the word is not semi-divine. He is not sub-deity. He is fully and completely divine. And here's another important grammatical point. Rick warned you that I would be like this, okay? Here's another point. The lack of a definite article, or the, in Greek, usually points towards the idea of quality or essence. Now, you're probably familiar with that, because when we talk about the qualifications of elder in 1 Timothy 3, we often say there, well, it says that it's a one- or that the elder is to be a husband of one wife. Now, it was illegal in the Roman Empire at that time period to have more than one wife. And so, Paul's not really about, worried about the number of wives there. And so, what we say when we preaching that, explain it, it actually has to do with the quality of the man's relationship with his wife. He is, by essence, a one-woman kind of man. Well, that's the same idea that we would bring here. The word is by essence, when you leave off the article, he is by essence divine. He is by quality God. John has done an amazing thing here, he has taught the doctrine of the Trinity with ten words. And I'm proving to you right now that I can't do that. Only, you can only do that if you're inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing Scripture. And you know what? The amazing thing is those ten words, when you translate them into English, not one of them in our translations is more than one syllable long. I mean, there's no co-eternal, consubstantial sort of stuff going on here. This is a ten-word lesson on the Trinity, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God at the same time. the Word and God, the Father are distinct, but share exactly the same essence isn 't that how hebrews one three says it? He is the radiance the, the, the radiance, the shining light, the glory he is the radiance of the father 's glory, and the exact representation of his Nature. Distinct person, same exact essence. In John 1 1, what John has done is chosen the most concise way possible in the Greek language to express the Trinity. It's amazing. Adding the Holy Spirit to that, you have one God eternally existing in three equal distinct persons. Now, what we've done so far is we've looked at the bark and the leaves and the branches and the roots and so on of the tree. Now I want to draw back and let's just look at not just the tree but the forest for a moment. Draw back and look at the meaning of this statement, the significance of these little bits that we've been looking at piece by piece. What this means, as John opens his gospel, is that Jesus Christ is exalted above all. There is no one like him. He's in his own category. He is above all because he is, in fact, God of very God. He is God in eternity past. He is God at creation. He is God when he takes on humanity in Mary's womb. He is God at his birth. He is God while he's learning to swing a hammer in Joseph's workshop. He is God's when he becomes thirsty, tired, and hungry during his ministry years. He's God on the cross... He is God when he rises from the dead. He is God forever. Colossians 2.9 says, In him dwells, present tense, in him is continuously dwelling right now the fullness of God in bodily form. He is the God-man forever. One person, two natures, divine and human. Two natures unmixed, unconflicting. And no, I don't understand that either. Jesus wasn't shy about declaring his full equality with the Father. John 10.31, I and the Father are one. John 14.9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. John 8.58, Jesus claimed that great Old Testament name of God, I am, or Yahweh, I exist, with all of its eternal overtones. And so John starts his gospel with his most profound, exulting declaration or declarations about Jesus Christ. He is God eternal, he is God distinct, and he is God equal. He summarizes in verse 2, he says, He was in the beginning with God. <laughs> now, having said all that, I do have something very important to say, and hopefully I'll say it right this time. Some of you are hoping that I'm done now, and that's not the case. <laughs> uh, I've, left one, I've left something out. I've explained verse 1 to you and gone through it, but frankly, I haven't done a good job yet. Frankly, there's a glaring oversight here. There's been a glaring omission, and I hope you've noticed it. I have failed you in my duty as an expositor, as a proclaimer of the word of God. I have failed you up to this point in my exposition of John 1.1. And you say, well, why is that? And the answer is, because I haven't yet explained to you the most obvious word in the verse. The word, word. I have explained that. John's title for Jesus Christ here. The word. Where in the world did John get that title for Jesus from? Why does he call Jesus the word here? That's something he does here in the prologue, but he doesn't do it anywhere else in the rest of his gospel. And frankly, no other New Testament author does it either. Where in the world does John get this term word and what does he mean by it? Why does it call your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Word? We need to think about this. The Greek word, as you probably would know, is the word logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God's. What does that title mean? Let me explain. And here I would suggest to you we reach the pinnacle. The pinnacle of the spire of the cathedral of John 1.1. Let me lay it out for you. John, in a stroke of divinely, it could only be divine, in a stroke of divinely produced genius, draws together two profound threads with this title, Logos, or the word for our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me give you the background. It's fascinating. Let's start with the Greek background. There's going to be a Hebrew kind of background as well. In an educated Greek culture, that term Logos was not at all unfamiliar. In fact, it was a very well-established concept. Leon Morris says this, in Greek thinking, quote, the, the Logos was an all-pervading principle. It was the rational principle of the universe. And You know, physicists are always talking about trying the, the uniting, unifying principle of the universe, and they're always trying to find it. Well, you find it when you find Jesus Christ. And that's how the Greeks summed up in their philosophy that idea of the, the unifying principle, the thing that gives meaning and purpose and existence, holds the whole universe together. Morris says, It was a creative energy. All things in one sense came from it. The use of this term would have been brought, would have brought to an educated Greek mind thoughts of something supremely great. It was, says Morris, the stabilizing, directing principle of the universe. And so any of John's readers who had any familiarity with Greek philosophy, that idea would have leapt to mind immediately for them. As part of the background, John is using that to capture the imagination and the attention of his Greek readers. When speaking of Jesus, John makes it clear then, by the title, Logos, that he is referring to something supremely great. Now, that's one thread, and leave that for a moment. Now, there's a second thread of background, and that comes from the Hebrew idea of the word in the Greek translation, Logos, in the Septuagint. Do you remember how God created the universe? He got a chemistry set from Amazon. You know, some assembly required batteries not included, right? Is that how he did it? No, he created with a word. There was nothing and he spoke. He created with a logos, with a word. God said. Genesis 1 used... The word word or speaking for God speaking his mind with omnipotent creative force. The universe that God had already imagined in his infinite mind, he now spoke or logos into existence. But in the Old Testament, God not only creates by speaking, he also reveals himself by speaking. God, one of the most fascinating things about him, God is a talking God. Some of you are very godly people in that imitation of that, no doubt. God is a talking God. The very first thing you find him doing is talking. God talks. You know his mind, his will, his thinking, his dislikes and his pleasures, his laws and his plans. You know all of that because of what he says. He's he's speaking at Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. That's an obvious example of God revealing himself through words. As are all the prophets' announcements in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. You see, for the Hebrew mind, this idea of God speaking had both a creative force and there was this powerful, accurate, revelational aspect to it as well. God is telling me who he is, what he thinks, what his character is like, and what he wants from me. Now, what John does in this opening verse of his gospel is he takes both of those threads and he draws them together, the Greek idea and the Hebrew idea, and he draws them both together in really a never-before-seen, amazingly new, never-before-heard-of combination to express the glory of Jesus Christ. His use of the word logos is in combining these two is, in essence, totally new. In fact, I would suggest to you that there's really no way of translating John 1.1 1, 1 that can wrap its arms all the way around both the Greek and the Hebrew backgrounds. For the Greek, we might say something like this. In the beginning was the controlling, guiding principle of the universe. The principle was with God and it was God's. But it doesn't cut it, does it? Because the controlling principle that John is describing is not a law, it's not a philosophical concept, it's not a principle at all. It's a person. Capital P, please. The supremely great thing about Greek philosophy or in Greek philosophy... Might have been a law of nature, an idea, a concept, or a force. But John just brushes that aside. He throws it completely aside and he declares that the supremely great thing in the universe is a person. And that person has come in human flesh. This is what Paul is driving at in Colossians 1 when he says, By him, by Christ, all things were created. He's that unifying, controlling, creative person. By him, all things were created. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the Logos, the controlling, creative person who began and sustains the universe. In the pinnacle of glory in the universe the underlying power which made and sustains all things is not a philosophical abstraction it's a person who is eternally with god and god at the same time but of course that controlling principle translation doesn't wrap around the idea of the hebrew mind and the the, the idea of the speaking and so if we're going to interact with that, with so this concept of the word, this title for Christ, we're going to have to have a second and equally important way of translating and thinking about this title. As the word, Jesus is the revealer of the mind and the character and the nature of God. But here's something interesting. Here's something very interesting to me. The term logos referred not so much to an individual word. There was another Greek word, rhema, for that. The word logos referred to a message, to a group of words all working together to accomplish a purpose. So a series of words lumped together. And so what John is saying is here, here is that Jesus is not just the controlling principle or person of the universe. He is also the message. He is the report. He is the proclamation. He is the instruction, the declaration, the revelation of God. I think we can put that in one word. It might be a little self-serving as a preacher to do it this way, but I think it makes sense. According to John 1.1, Jesus is God's sermon. Is that what he's saying? Jesus is God's sermon. That's one of the ways to translate the word logos, and I think that's the way we should translate it here. You see, God is a preaching God. He's not merely a talking God, he's a preaching God. God has been preaching from Genesis 1 1 onwards. When God speaks the creation into existence, let there be light, those words are a sermon about himself, his intellect, his glory, his power, his majesty. Isn't that exactly how David described it in Psalm 19? He said, the heavens are preaching, telling, declaring the glory of God. And we've all stood and seen a sunrise or a sunset and heard the sermon. We saw the sermon with our eyes. And you looked at it and said, God is great. The beauty of a sunrise or a sunset is merely recounting, retelling, preaching the glory of God. Their beauty is an echo of the voice that called them into existence with a word. The creation is a sermon. The Ten Commandments were a sermon, given in an audible, divine voice. God's voice so terrified the people of Israel that they scattered in fear, running to escape the inescapable God. God preached through the prophets every time they said, Thus saith the Lord. But you know what? All of those sermons... Creational sermon, Thus saith the Lord, Ten Commandments. All those sermons, preparatory. That's all. They were good, great, wonderful, but they were preliminary, preparatory, preface. The sermon that explains God, the sermon that reveals to us God's glory and God's mind better than any other sermon, is the sermon. Jesus Christ. Do you remember the words of Hebrews 1, verse 1? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these days he has spoken to us in his, last word, son. In light of that, I think that we should translate John 1, 1 this way. In the beginning was the sermon, and the sermon was with God, and the sermon was God. And remember those two verses I pointed out and said that those were key verses? In the beginning was the sermon, the sermon was with God, and the sermon was God, and God's sermon became flesh, and He dwelt among us. We'll talk about this tonight. No one has seen God at any time, but the sermon, the sermon has explained Him. See, John presents Jesus as the controller and the creator of the universe, but he also presents him as God's word, God's message. God is a preacher, and Jesus Christ is his very best sermon. When you see Jesus' compassion for sinners in the gospel, when you see his power over storms, when you see his anger at self-righteous prides, you are hearing God's best sermon on that subject. When you see him healing the sick and forgiving the castoffs, God is preaching about himself. When you see Jesus dying on the cross in the self-sacrificial love, bearing the wrath of God that you and I deserved, when you see that, God's preaching. God's preaching about himself, his holiness, and his love. Jesus is the word, he's the sermon, who explains God better than any other Because He is God. He's been with the Father from the beginning, before all beginnings. Face to face with the Father, in intimate, knowing, loving relationship. He is God. And He came. He came permanently adding humanity to His eternal, divine existence so that He could explain God to us, to you. Whatever you do, don't miss the sermon. Don't miss the sermon. Jesus is God's best sermon. Believe in Him and you will be saved. He explains God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus is God's final Word. He's God's best sermon. Let's pray. Lord, we just rejoice to exalt our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we close this morning, I just want to thank you for your great glory. Thank you for exalting your Son above all. Thank you for these great, profound, simple words of John one one, Lord's... We rejoice that you are a gracious God, that you have displayed your glory to us in a way that we can understand. We'll see that tonight. Jesus is the very best explanation of God because he is God and he's understandable as man. Thank you for what your son did on the cross for us. Thank you that our sins are forgiven through his gracious work, that he has been a substitute. Thank you that you preach your holiness through your son, that you preach your mercy through your son as well. And Lord, we want to be wrapped up in that sermon the rest of our life. That is a sermon we never want to end. We want your son, Lord Jesus Christ, to always be echoing in our mind, always echoing in our ears, guiding our feet, guiding our hands, guiding our tongues. That he would be what we speak. Lord, we pray that we would live in and love your son, the sermon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.